You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Susanna George, an international correspondent and the former Afghanistan bureau chief here at the Washington Post. I'm pleased to be joined today by Sola Mahfouz and Malena Kapoor, here to talk about their new book, Defiant Dreams. Afghanistan two years after the Taliban's return to power and the future of the country's women. Sola, Malena, thank you so much for joining us here on Washington Post Live. Thank you for having us. Sola, I'd like to start with you. You're currently a quantum computing researcher in the United States. You talk about your journey to this point. Uh, and I'd like to ask you, what is it that inspired you to teach yourself English and math? So at age 16, um, I did not know how to add and subtract. And that was because when I was 11 years old, I stopped. I was forced to stop going to school. And from that day on, the restriction on my life only continued to increase. Um, I, I left home only a couple of times a year. And whenever I did, I had to wear this suffocating burqa that covered me from head to toe. And meanwhile, my brothers were going to school. They were thriving academically, and I was deeply jealous of their life and when how they were moving forward while I was stuck. And I think that made me ask a lot of questions that eventually, like, what, what's the meaning of life? Why is everything like that? And I think one one thing that stopped making sense, then everything, everything st- starts to stop making sense. And I think that questions led me to start secretly start educating myself and defiant dreams tell the story of how i went from not able to add and subtract and in three years time uh you know learn math college level calculus physics and eventually now i'm here at tufts university in the u.s uh developing quantum algorithms i'm always so inspired when i hear people tell the stories of teaching themselves english I think it's really fascinating and it's really interesting hearing about your story about how education allowed you a pathway out of a life that you just didn't feel like fit for you. Melina, um, education is central to the story that this book tells. I wonder if you could help our audience today understand why is it that the Taliban are restricting education You know, in 2021, um, there was this conversation in the United States basically about this Taliban 2.0, and there was a lot of discussion around the fact that um, this Taliban was interested in in economy, in joining the international order, in maybe guaranteeing some women's rights. And for as long as Afghanistan was in the news here, you know, that was the story of the Taliban that we heard. And it's really only after the world's eyes turned away from the situation that we then saw this systematic rolling back of core freedoms for women, um, which really harkened back to the Taliban of the 90s and the 2000s that we had all been familiar with. And so I really do think that, especially on this anniversary, it's important to acknowledge what has been happening in Afghanistan, how the story has differed from the one that was often painted in the media in 2021, and to really acknowledge over the past two years just how much Afghan women have lost. And so on that point, you, I understand, have written this book under a pseudonym. 
Can you explain a little bit why you made that choice? And my guess is that it would connect to a lot of the security concerns that many Afghans still face to this day. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, the important point for me was to tell the story because, uh, you know, I feel like Afghanistan is uh, very, like, seen mostly to journalistic views. And I think that, does, you know, we see generally, you know, Afghanistan is one of the worst country to be a woman, but that doesn't tell you how it feels uh, on a daily basis, the emotions, the hopes and dreams that's all taken away from women. And through telling my story, I wanted to create this window so that people can feel, and though it's me overcoming a lot of challenges, but it's also like sh shedding light of, you know, just, just to get an education what women go through. Malena, um, how did you two first meet and how did the idea to write this book come about? So Sola and I first met about three years ago. It was during the pandemic, so we actually could only talk over Zoom initially. Um, and Sola, you know, I think at that point knew that she wanted to tell her story, but was looking for, for someone to work with. And so we, you know, she started telling me stories from her life and I started writing them and that became the basis for Defiant Dreams. I think initially I was really drawn to her story just because of how incredibly inspiring it is. You know, as you mentioned, the fact that um, she couldn't even add or subtract at age 16. And from that, she was able to, to move so quickly and so far without any of the traditional supports we see here in the United States. Um, but I think on a deeper level, I was really drawn to a central theme, what, what eventually became a central theme in the book, which is this idea of mothers and daughters and the fact that history is really moving backwards in Afghanistan. And Sola's mother, for example, is a perfect example of this. As a young teenager, she was a student at Kabul University. She could go out with her friends, she could wear dresses, she could style her hair, study what she wanted. And she eventually became a professor just a few years later. Um, but she had to watch her own daughter not even be able to complete an elementary school education. And now that's a story that we're seeing echoing across the country for so many mothers and daughters. And I think that was a really powerful story that I wanted to be a part of sharing. I was de I was struck in the book when you detailed the uh, Taliban's come to power in the 90s and how some of those incremental changes really reflect what we've seen happen in Afghanistan over the past two years after the mm -hmm. Taliban returned to power. And I don't know if you were working on the book at this time, um, but it sounds like you both already knew each other and you were talking to each other about the country's history. I wonder if you, when you were talking to each other, if that's something you reflected on, that you were almost seeing um, the same types of events, the women being banned from certain parts of public life, music being banned, this sort of kind of um, this uh, tight um, control of public life and especially the lives of women in Afghanistan repeat itself. Yeah, I think when the US troops withdrew, there was this striking visual representation that emerged on the walls and on the screens. And, you know, the murals that celebrated uh, women achievements over 20 years were either um, painted black or defaced on, on TV too. The, the TV presenters just disappeared overnight, leaving only male faces and voices behind. And over 
it's two years now, there have been 50 edicts uh, in place to infringe every rights of women from going to school to working and to basic things like going to parks. And it's just basically, uh, it's just basically to erase women from the public space, just like the, in the 90s. And it just, it just continues to get worse and worse every day. Yeah, I think that was a real frustration for us because, you know, in a deep frustration because the book was initially supposed to only go to maybe 2019, 2020 and ending in this kind of political in-between space. But then, of course, as we were writing, we saw all the events of 2021 unfolding. And um, there are just so many echoes of past eras in Afghan history that we now see today. I remember there's one story that's towards the beginning of the book, which is takes place when the civil war was happening in Afghanistan. And um, Sola's mother, again, had to wear a burqa for the first time. It was the first time that her young son had seen her wearing a burqa. And he actually thought she had gone blind, you know, because she was just in this extraordinarily restrictive covering. And so he was leading her, this little boy down the streets, showing her the steps as if she really couldn't see. And the family was laughing at him, like, you know, this child doesn't understand that there are these crisscross slats. She actually can see a little bit. Um, but of course, upon reflection, his innocent assessment really was right that that she had lost everything and in many ways she had gone blind um and that's something that occurred decades before what we're now seeing um happen in the country so i'm wondering if you can share one of the stories that you detail in the book about the links that you went to to get an education uh, especially on this day when we are um, marking the anniversary of the turn to power. This is something that a lot of Afghan women are now struggling with, the drive to get an education against um, the authorities' restrictions. So tell us a little bit about your struggle in that area. So, you know, I was, you know, I was lucky to have a grandfather who was self-taught. So that for me, when I start going to school, years later, I realized, well, that still can be a way. And he talked about education. It's like opening a window to the world. And at that time, I just felt like my world was so dark and I just needed that light to come through that education. And it did feel, even though, you know, initially I did not know English at age 14 and, you know, I would listen for hours to BBC, CNN to learn English. And then I wouldn't like for hour, I, I would understand a word or two, but, but it just felt so empowering at that time because everything else I was dependent on uh, other people and my brothers and father and that was the only thing that I was able to do. And secondly, I think when you, there was this accepted idea that women are stupid. And I think when I started learning and was able to learn, I think th that was like this contradicting this whole image. And my mom was educated, so I think I would look at her, I was like, well, she's not stupid, she's intelligent and wise. And I think that's, and then, you know, I was learning English and then just by chance, I come across Khan Academy. And though I had this extremely slow dialogue connection, I would watch videos and and then, then the second one was once I was able to educate myself, I had to prove that I, uh, you know, to apply to the to university, I have to prove that I know things. And so I had to take the SAT and that was not available in Afghanistan. And uh, and so somehow I 
you know, I was able to take the SAT and then, um, you know, apply to the U to to, to to universities and I got accepted. And then there's another struggle was to get a visa. Uh, and it's after like many, many obstacles, I was able to come, but it was not an easy journey. Yeah, I think that SAT story is actually an, an incredible story um, because I think initially, if you look at Sola's story, you might think the most difficult part was using that slow dial-up connection, studying in the middle of the night, the only time she wasn't allowed to cook and clean. But really, once she had reached the academic level of, a, of an American college student, she decided she wanted to come to the United States. And it was at that point that she faced so many institutional barriers because she had to prove that secret education, you know, prove what level she was at. So first she tried to go to the local Ministry of Education to try and get a certificate, but they wouldn't even look her in the eyes because she was a woman, let alone give her the paperwork. Then she tried to take the GED, which I think we all take for granted here, but that wasn't offered in Afghanistan or any neighboring countries. And so the SAT became her only chance at a way out. So she crossed one of the most dangerous borders of the world into Pakistan, the only place where the test was available. You know, this is a border where people are often beaten with electric cables, where men and women have to cross separately, where you have to take multiple vehicles just to get across. And she managed to get into the last testing spot in Karachi. And that SAT eventually became her ticket out. But I think just how hard it was for her to even get, you know, get to a place where she could sit and take that test really speaks to the incredible obstacles to education that girls are facing today. It really made me think about the ripple effects of a restriction on education for women, that even, you know, even if it were a restriction of just a few years, women weren't allowed access to um, high school and higher level education, that the ripple effect it has on the country's women could last much, much longer. I'm so thankful that you shared that story with us today. I wanted to ask about the role that internet played. Um, you mentioned it a little bit before, and that's something we're hearing a lot of Afghan women say now that they need more access to internet in their homes because it's what allows them to educate themselves or what allows mothers to educate their daughters. Yeah, I mean, I think my story would not be possible without internet. You know, I was able to, you know, access internet to learn, like learn English, Khan Academy, read books. And yeah, I mean, I think we can be creative a lot with our solutions now, again, like because now it's it's reflected, you know, what I've been through is now reflected across the nation. Um, and I think technology can play a role to help in some ways thinking about credentialing processes or online university educations or access to standardized tests. These are things that don't require the government to intervene and you know, change immigration laws or anything like that, but they can still, I think, have a, a significant impact on, on the kinds of access to education that girls have today. We have a question from the audience here. This is from Khorshid in Washington, DC who asks, should the United States pursue dialogue with the Taliban? Do, does the United States and other global leaders, do they have any leverage with the Taliban to help restore education and Afghan women's rights? Sola, would you like to answer that? It's a complicated question. It's a complicated question. question. Yeah, it's a difficult question. We've talked about is that idea that you know, when the U.S. does start to engage in, in some dialogue, as, as we've seen, you know, over the past um, couple of months, 
sometimes it can feel like the stories of women and the experiences of actual Afghan women are lacking. So whatever a political, uh, the first steps of a political situation uh, solution look like in this instance, I think it's about bringing in the voices of people who are affected um, and remembering that that ultimately is the goal of any conversation. Thank you so much. We have another question from the audience here. It's Pamela in Florida. And she asks, what's the most impactful action that people can take to assist the women of Afghanistan? And this is a question that I get a lot from people who read the stories that I have written from Afghanistan. They want to know how it is that they can help if they can help at all. Sola, do you want to try to take that one? I think from what I mostly hear from Afghan women, they say, just don't forget us. Just don't make it seem like it's normal. It don't make this normalized. Like, okay, Afghanistan, everything is bad. And we just like, okay, it's a hopeless situation. There's nothing can be done. And I think there needs to be a continuous, like we can shine light on their stories and like go, like make their voices heard and their stories heard. Malena, you recently had a piece about the Taliban's closure of beauty salons in Afghanistan. I think this is an aspect of life there that is often misunderstood. Uh, beauty salons are not seen as essential services in the same way a health clinic is re registered by uh, American readers, certainly mm -hmm. at first. But beauty salons do offer women a rare place in public that's not, um, or at least, you know, uh, a step or two removed from public. That's not, you know, their family's home where they can gather and speak to one another. Um, do you want to tell our viewers here today, why is it important that beauty salons are no longer available to Afghan women? Sure. Yeah, I think you make a, an excellent point that I was also thinking about in, in putting together that piece that sometimes when you're flipping through a newspaper or something, the closure of beauty salons doesn't maybe immediately strike you as the most a pressing issue, but the reality is that beauty salons in Afghanistan had become one of the last places that women could gather freely. They also were a huge source of income for women, women who didn't have men in their families or women who just, you know, of course needed to bring in more income, especially with the state of the economy in that country today. And really beyond that, I think more philosophically, when you take away a woman's education, when you take away her identity, in terms of her job and her position within the workplace, really the way she looks does become one of the last markers of individuality. So beyond taking away a physical space in that moment, the Taliban really demonstrated their will to erase women and erase their presence and their uniqueness. Um, and I think that's really what that ban stood for. That's an interesting point you make about an income source. One of the things that we don't often immediately think about when we hear about the closures of schools and universities for women is it's not only, you know, it's the education of many women, but it's also women who are in teaching and professor positions who are losing their jobs, a career that they have probably fought very long against great odds in order to be able to achieve. One of the things, Sola, that I was really interested in the book is that you really trace the country's history through your family's history and you talk about the women in your family at these different markers of uh, Afghanistan's history. And I wonder, um, 
think thinking back on the lives that your mother and grandmother led, what how do you feel about this phase of Afghanistan's history and the future of other women in your family moving forward? I think it's so uh, even when I was, you know, I would hear my mom's story, I would just felt like she was just talking about another country. And I think it's um yeah, it it just it just tells like I think I think it's just so devastating to feel one of the reasons I wanted to tell the story was to say like Afghanistan was all not always like that. It could have been different. And now I mean it's very I'm still trying to understand and it just hard to like what women could do and now it's like but just generation of generation because of the political situations you know the schools are closed on their face and they will never be able to see what they can do and with my own education like the more i learn the more i mourn of what you know you know what well, afghan women can do but they will never realize that they they will ever be able to do any of the things I do think that your story offers an amazing amount of hope with it as well. You know, against all odds, you were able to secure an education for yourself. And, you know, that speaks to your drive and your desire to do more with your life. And I think it also speaks to the character of the country that you're from. And so I, I know that this is, you know, definitely a difficult day for you. And we've seen a lot of setbacks to women's rights in Afghanistan, but I do feel like your message is also one of hope for Afghan women. Malena, um, is that something that you've also felt as you were working on this project together? Absolutely. I mean, I think a central goal for us was that idea of how do we reject notions of passivity and victimhood that are often placed um, on Afghan women and the reality is that Sola's rebellion was one of education and that luckily, there was so much luck involved that led to a way out for her. But every day in Afghanistan, there are so many small rebellions that you know don't directly lead to complete freedom, but might buy an hour or a few days of liberty um, for women. But an important part of this book was showing that throughout history, there have been women who who fight and continue to fight. And, and hopefully the book inspires those of us in the United States and in the West more generally to think about what our responsibility is lift, in lifting any barriers that we might be imposing, um, you know, so those fights aren't in vain. And Sola, do you have a message that you would like to share with the girls and women in Afghanistan who are struggling with a lot of the same struggles that you had uh, to get an education or to expand their lives? I think uh, I don't have a message for Afghan women because I think they are the ones who inspired me the most. You know, they continue to, you know, protest to a lot of them continue to say, you know, as long as we breathe, we're going to educate ourselves. But I do have a message to the world as that just don't stand a lot of the time. They do stand on the way of solution. For example, you know, when I was uh, Take, you know, I got accepted to the university, but when I was applying for visa in like at, the, at that time, a Kabul embassy, U.S. Kabul embassy, and the visa officer just said to me, well, I don't think you're going there just to get an education. And I think the world really needs to shatter 
the narrow view that they see the Afghan through. And yeah, I think that that is my message to the world. Well, I'm so glad that you shared your story with us today because that is one way in which you are telling other people the stories about your country that you hope that people would see first when they're uh, thinking about accepting um, the visa application for a young Afghan student. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us here today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.